welcome back to another episode of black feminist rants this is episode 21 it's going to be another really really good episode today i have the absolute pleasure of speaking with dr monica mclemore she is a nurse she is also a reproductive health researcher she researches abortion prenatal care birthing all types of things she has so much experience so much expertise and she's also a really great activist in the reproductive justice space she she works really closely with black mamas matter alliance she has great connections with sister song she's just everywhere doing everything and so you're going to be able to learn a lot about that in this episode her work um for rj and also her work for reproductive health care and promoting that on the west coast so let's jump right into the episode Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Black Feminist Rants. Um, just to start us off, could you start by introducing yourself, your name, your pronouns, and then any titles or identities that make sense? I know you do a lot, so you probably have lots of titles. Yeah, but you know, people know me. So, you know, I'm Monica McLemore. I am an associate professor with tenure in the Family Healthcare Nursing Department at the University of California, San Francisco School of Nursing. I'm a clinician scientist at Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health. The ANTS program, which is a program of the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health, which I'm also a member. I'm affiliated with several institutes at UCSF, including the Center for Vulnerable Populations, as well as the Philip R. Lee Institute for Health Policy Studies. I'm a proud member of the uh, Black Mamas Matter Alliance uh, Board of Directors. I use she, her, and doctor pronouns um, and doctor for when people know me um, because I think it's really important to establish respect. Not that I'm hierarchical at all, but um, I do feel like a lot of times in a lot of the spaces that I'm in that people don't acknowledge me as, as a doctorally prepared person and that's very irritating. I identify as a uh, you know internal East Coaster who's lived on the West Coast for a very long time. Uh, I grew up in Jersey and I've lived in California way longer than I've ever, I le ever lived in Jersey. I left when I was 21, but you know, I love both coasts for a lot of reasons. Um, and you know, quite frankly, I, I like to also identify like as Jessica Roach from Root Doulas, who's a good friend of mine always says, I was enough at just black woman. Like I didn't have to like, like list all that out. But I do because I think it's important, you know, that folks also understand, like I, I identify as a gamer, geek, silly, uh, large child. Um, I'm a big kid who, you know, is a serious scientist. <laughs> so that's how I think about myself. Perfect, thank you. I looked through your, um, like the survey to get all your like handles and stuff and I saw your pronoun, we had doctor on there and I started laughing, I love that. Um, I took gender and society and we talked about how like, women and like POC specifically women of color are the like the most likely to get their title stripped from them so I've always been and I see some of my 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 peers like call their professors by the first name but I do think there's some level setting that has to occur in certain spaces like it's in, in the same way I've been a nurse for almost 30 years I never called patients sweetie or honey or baby right I mean because in my mind that that is it's rude my mama is and my parents are from the south Right, so this whole idea that you would actually, as a nurse, use your power to speak to patients who are much older than you by calling them sweetie and honey and darling. I feel like at that point in their lives, they've earned enough respect just from time on the planet for me to say, Ms. blah, 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 how would you for me to, to you know, call you when we engage today when I'm taking care of you as your nurse? 
Like I just, I don't, like some people just don't get trained in that. And it drives me crazy because until you establish that baseline of respect, you don't get to call me Monica. Like, and my students, like I don't, they don't get to call me Monica until our class is over. Right. Because to me, it maintains that firewall of respect. People don't slip into this confusion. Like I'm your friend. Right. For me in an educational space, I learn from learners and students and I call them until they give me permission by their last name using whatever pronoun they want me to use. So to me, it is a, it is a, a training of individuals in respect. And as a nurse, I think that that's really important that we train. It's, it's some of those hidden lessons that people don't talk about when we educate and socialize the next wave of public health and, and, and healthcare practitioners. So for me, yeah, I, I am very formal until I'm told otherwise. Thank you so much. I agree wholeheartedly with everything you just said. Um, but for my first question, switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about reproductive justice. And so the sister song kind of has this mantra that we all have a story to tell. So I like to ask my guests if they are comfortable sharing their reproductive justice story. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. See, I, I, yes, we all do have a story to tell. I've written about mine. Mine's not like like people want my story to be more fascinating than it is, but it's not. Right. So, you know, I grew up evangelical. A lot of people don't know this. My parents are still evangelicals. I'm an ex-evangelical, which is why I can engage with evangelical folks. Um, I, you know, did not like have first sexual encounter until I was 21. I have never been pregnant. Would have no idea what I, I would do if I were. I never wanted to be a parent. Um, I'm the aunt of the year to like everybody's children in fact i have two COVID 19 pandemic like god children i have yet to meet and i'm gonna meet my kids so i i never wanted to be a parent that was never on my radar i i was at my sister's both her daughter's births like i'm that person um but being a a parent no i was uh, 17 years old when i saw my first birth because people forget i've i've only done nursing for pay as an adult that's the only thing I've ever done. I went to school when you could, you know, graduate high school, you could go to college and get a baccalaureate degree in nursing. My baccalaureate degree is in nursing. And because I was born in 1969, it's preemie, um, I got to go to college when I was actually 16, about to turn 17, because I started the kindergarten and four, like I was four years old, like before we had all them rules about when you go to kindergarten. Anyway, so I saw my first birth when I was 17. I was like, oh my God, this is really cool. And being a nurse coming up during HIV and AIDS really has, has impacted me in ways that I can't describe. Like I'm even, I, at 51, I'm now still unpacking what that means. Um, but one of the things that taught me was, you know, an entire generation died and that happened on our watch. Our public health infrastructure and our government allowed that to happen. Um, and that wasn't okay. Like I knew the nursing faculty I worked side by side with, they were pissed, they were frustrated, they were upset, they really felt like people deserve good care. I mean, it feels very much how I feel right now in this COVID situation, but it also showed me what stigma and harm and judgment and blame can do around sexual behavior and activity. I was like, that's not right. This is not right, y'all. So for me, it's always my RJ indoctrination birth as I continue to grow, you know, it, it really has been more about the fact that people deserve to get the services, the care, the listening, 
that 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 they as they become sexual beings in the universe they deserve that that is just an essential part of life now i've learned some very important lessons along the way which is one of the reasons why i use my platform to lift up rj leaders from the south because sometimes those of us who are not in in areas where reproductive oppression is very obvious and codified in political structure we don't need to be speaking for other folks right so i've also learned that there are places where i need to amplify and lift up and there are places where i need to step back so for me it's it's more how do i pass the mic as as a leader as somebody who's trying to envision a different narrative that really is grounded in reproductive justice without having to own it because nobody owns RJ. It's bigger than that, right? <laughs> so, or at least that's the way I think about it, right? I mean, obviously, I think it's important that Black women be centered um, because they created. And, you know, I, I, for me, it is something that, that really has changed both my personal life, but also my, my research and clinical career. Thank you for that. And I really like that you said um, about like how you can amplify the voices of other people who are kind of like in those more reproductive oppressed um, spaces. I feel like I see that a lot recently with like kind of like the social media activism that's kind of been booming since um, kind of COVID took off where yeah. a lot of specifically white people will like insert themselves into like racial justice spaces and like theorize and like make and like get all like this social capital and social clout instead of just like amplifying the people that they're actually learning this from on social media so they can have some of that those benefits that they're getting as a white person just kind of like regurgitating it so i've seen that a lot and it's very frustrating so i'm glad that you very annoying and the truth of the matter is if you don't go back to the source material then i don't have any respect for you right i mean one of the reasons why i made the commitment after i gained a certain amount of financial stability to donate all my honoraria to reproductive justice organizations and Black Moms Matter Alliance and National Network of Abortion Funds are my two favorite that I donate all my money to when people ask me to speak. It's because number one, I didn't want to screw up honoraria for people who actually need them. Just because I don't need it don't mean somebody else doesn't need it. But I also want to put my money where my mouth is. Okay, if I'm going to say I'm really down with reproductive justice and somebody's offering me money to speak, then that money should go back to RJ organizations that are doing the work, right? So it's, it's, it's not about I, I line my pockets or I get to become an influencer on the backs of the people who are actually doing the work. It's how do I then use my platform to make more space for them to be heard so that I don't have to translate it. Exactly, I love that. That is a great concept. Um, so how do you incorporate reproductive justice into your practice as a healthcare provider? And then now as like a clinical scientist. Well, the first thing I always do, and this makes people uncomfortable, but the truth of the matter is, I don't think we're ever gonna achieve reproductive justice if we don't view the people that we serve as our future workforce, as our future collaborators, as our future funders, as our future analysts. Like like for me, and I, I learned this interesting, excuse me enough, from a white woman mentor who's a nurse and she runs the Homeless Prenatal Project here in San Francisco. 20, she made a commitment early on that 25% of people who they previously served would become the employees of the organization because she really wanted to put her money where her mouth was and say, well, they, that, that alone qualifies them to work for us, right? So from where I sit, the first thing I do is I try to have all black teams or, or teams of people who historically would not have an opportunity to work in uh, officially in reproductive justice work from either a clinical or a public health perspective. I like to prioritize those folks 
Because in my mind, again, if we really think that people are experts by experience, then that's the, that's the skill set I need to do my work, right? So I make sure that our teams are comprised by individuals who not only have a, a, you know, a didactic understanding of reproductive justice, but also a lived experience of reproductive justice. The second way I, I help that to show up in my work is I believe in multiple ways of receiving accountability and feedback. Some people will send me an email. Some people will call me on the phone. Some people will talk to me directly in a meeting. I set up an anonymous, you know, Qualtrics or SurveyMonkey where people can tell me things that they don't feel comfortable telling me in, if they had to identify themselves. And that's for staff, that's for students, that's for other faculty, because I, I need to be accountable, you know, in ways that I think reproductive justice holds people accountable to the things that they say, as well as the stuff that they do. The last way is I really feel it's important that my projects really bring in RJ leaders, RJ folks with lived experience, making sure, again, to I pass the mic, right? You have to be able to, to know when you should talk and when you should shut up and when you should have other people talking or when you should make space for other people to bring their either written or conversant brilliance forward. And that doesn't all that some that a lot of times that's not always me. I started this interview saying I've never birthed. That's why I listen to birthing people. Yes, I've studied it. Yes, I've witnessed it. Yes, I've attended to it. I've been to 56 births in my lifetime, right? But that doesn't that that, that expertise is different and unique from having had the experience of birth. And I honor both equally. So for me, it, in, infusing your work with reproductive justice means that you're not just going to check off some boxes and live by some principles. It means that your work is designed from start to finish with the accountability in place that you need in order to say, how do the most marginalized, how do the people who have been you know, withheld so much, how are they centered in this work and how are they gonna get as much as they can? because those are the people we're working with and those are the people and how can we bring them into our team how can we bring their ideas into our our from the beginning right so for me that's how i integrate it into the research and the, and the science work that i do that's very difficult because i i function at a primarily white university that was really built on a white man's imagination of what academia is the fact that we still function on a reimbursement economy is stupid Right. That means you have you could front money to be able to travel or you could front money to be able to, you know, do whatever and that you're willing to be reimbursed for that. That's 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 not how that's not consistent with the reproductive justice approach. Right. That your expertise can be rented. Like that's a problem or that we always want to have temporary jobs or pieces of jobs. Oh, five percent effort here, 50 percent effort. No, people deserve a living wage job at all levels right i mean so it, to me it, it's it's holding that tension of you want to have authentic reproductive justice you want to have authentic economic justice you want to have authentic you know places and humane workplaces but the structure in which you're trying to do your work is jacked up so how do you fix the structure and that's what i've been spending a lot of my time doing recently to really really reimagine what that could look like and make it a more hospitable environment for people who want to do reproductive health and reproductive rights work 
in the confines of an academic institution and an academic institution that has multiple sites for healthcare and health services provision. I really like that you brought up accountability because one thing that I've always thought is that if you want to be an activist or an organizer or whatever, you have to like have a community that's you're you're held accountable to, like someone that's going to check you when you make a misstep. And I had a question I was going to say for the end, but you kind of already like spoke to it. Um, I had the pleasure of speaking to you and introducing you at Tulane's Convening Equity Program last year yep. and you spoke about your research project and um, you, I don't remember the exact details, but you had um, a study and the people that you interviewed for the study, you, I think you cited them and you added them as contributors so that if they wanted to pursue higher education um, later on, they would have something to reference. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the details of that and how you came up with that concept. Oh yeah, so let's be clear, right? I mean, if you look at the author lists of any infographics or scholarly paper or blog that I've written, it always has a, a community member with lived experience on it, right? To me, authorship and currency matter. Now for me as an academic, a lot of my currency is papers and grants and things like that. But I always ask community members, what currency do you need in order to be able to, to like do you in your life? So the project that I talked about when I was at Tulane was actually a very, very interesting one where with the preterm birth initiative, which, you know, here in California, we're really, really trying to make sure that babies don't come too soon. And I already mentioned I was a preemie in 1969. So this work is always very personal for me. It was a big deal to be born eight weeks early. Like my birthday is supposed to be on Valentine's Day, but it's on New Year's Eve. And that's because, you know, I was a preemie in 69. Now you, you see 24 week babies living now because technology has changed over time. But in 69, like I always have to remind people, that's like right after a year after the civil rights act was passed and I was born after King was shot. Like they was murdering black people in suits on the street. So like the idea that you would be born early at that time without a lot of the technologies that we know now, you know, was a big deal. And, and that we still have not shifted the lever around pretend birth is really sad. But at the same time, you can't figure out why babies come early if we actually don't really know why babies come into normal time. So that, that's a whole other conversation. But one of the projects that we did was I said, well, we can't have a preterm birth initiative if you don't have parents or people who were preemies or people who experienced premature. How are we going to have an initiative if those people aren't centered in the initiative? And so one of the things that we did was we went to Oakland and Fresno, San Francisco, and we talked uh, with parents and people who were preemies and people who had preemies. And we talked with them about what that was like and what questions, what research questions did they have that they really wanted answered? Or what clinical question, what question, what policy question did they want somebody to answer that weren't answered? And across all those groups, in all three geographies, we did two focus groups each, except in Fresno where we did three because we did one Spanish uh, language only focus group. We asked them to generate and rank and prioritize questions that they had during pregnancy, childbirth, the postpartum, whenever in their reproductive lives. What, qu what questions did you want to have answered? And all of those groups collectively generated, ranked and prioritized over 400 different research, researchable questions about their care. And it was in that context where we, we asked people, we, when we announced the initiative, New York Times came to us very similarly 
to when they did with Linda Villarosa's piece talking about why black moms die, right? We, they were highlighting moms who had had uh, traumatic births or had had some kind of, you know, or trauma or thing that had come up and wanted to do a photo montage. So they were like, oh, Dr. McLemore, we really want you. I said, actually, no. Can I go back to our community members who participated in our research activity and offer this to them? Two of our participants participated in that piece and the photographer was so moved by their story that he did a whole photo shoot with both families of these beautiful black and white photos that they got to keep for themselves. But then he made frame prints for us as an initiative. I mean, that was currency that she got to use to say, hey, my story was published in the New York Times. That probably meant a lot more to her than the paper that she's on with me in social science and medicine. That was currency for me. The currency she needed as an artist, as a mom, as somebody who is really interested in journalism was to participate in a photojournalism project in the New York Times, right? So for us, we have to rethink what does currency mean to the people that we work with so that we're not always extracting to them. That's why I have a conversation with community members. I'm like, okay, what's your goal here? People will say, well, you know, I'm going to beauty school. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Okay, I'm like, how can we help you? How can this, your participation in this, help you to get that? That to me is reproductive justice. That to me is authentic community engagement where you're not just trying to extract stuff from people, but that you're a real partner. I couldn't believe the first time after we did that, people wanted us to, to help. They asked us for like something like 50 or $75 for the community baby shower. I was like, dude, we throwing that. And how about we throwing that every quarter? Like we will, we will give you the money, right? Of course you, you, we should be underwriting the community baby shower. That, that should, we should just be doing that, right? But that's what you get when you ask people what currency do they want, right? Versus what currency you think you want with them. Now that same person who asked us for the money for the baby shower, She's on our paper that's in reproductive health. Cause she's like, you know, I might want to go to graduate school. So I, I want to be on that one. But you have to give people the opportunity, right? To be able to do those kinds of, you have to reimagine that. Who knew that one of the currencies that one of our community members would want, her brother was a graphic designer. She's like, do you think my brother could do some mock-ups for you for your infographics for that piece? I'm like, yeah, procurement. We got to hire a black, graphic design firm that I didn't even know existed because we put it out to our partners that that was a need that we had right so that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about in terms of if you really really want to bring people into your research it's not just about the data and the findings and all of it it's all those wraparound services that go along with science communication it's all those wraparound services that go with science dissemination it's all those wraparound services that go with recruitment and retention. People talk about science and data like it's a cookbook that you get at the end and nobody knows how it got created. And that's not true, right? There's a whole constellation of other things that make scientific machinery work and community members are quite capable of not only leading it, but also running it. So that's how I feel about that. I get very excited when I talk about this. <laughs> So it's my thing. It's my thing. <laughs> I've never, I never thought about it like that. That's um, like support people in the ways that they need to be supported, not in the ways that we assume they need it. That is really great, and, then yeah. you, and that and that benefited you as well as benefiting them too. 
So that is a really like right. reframing it. Wow. Thank you for that. It demystifies research too, though, right? Everybody bitching and complaining about mistreatment and, and vaccine hesitancy and all this. That's a, that's a trust issue, right? So one of the, when you rethink what the wraparound services are and include that in the conduct of science, doesn't that build trust? Right. I, so I, it, I, it's all connected and it makes me crazy when people act like it's separate. I'm sorry. I just had to say that because folks are driving me crazy with this. whole. Oh, Monica, how can we fix the vaccine hesitancy? I said, you know what the number one thing you can do to fix COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy is tell people they can have as many visits to ask as many questions as they want free of charge. They can have as many consultative visits as they want. It will be either be covered by insurance or your institution will cover it so that they can ask all the questions that they want with no expectation that they will walk out with a shot. You want to rebuild trust? That would be the easiest way to do it, quickest. Nobody wants to do that, right? Yeah. Because that takes time and money and I'm like, but if you really wanted to address these hesitancy issues, you really want to rebuild trust and you want to become trustworthy, you need to offer people free testing regardless of whether or not they get vaccines. Right? I mean, I could keep going. <laughs> so, but again, it's this whole idea where you have to be willing to rethink that and to listen to folks. And that's why I think reproductive justice is so important. You said something really paramount, which is we believe that everybody has a story. I would extend that to say, and that story is valuable and necessary and part of a basic function that we all humans have, which is to be heard, which is to be seen, right? So I, yeah, I'm with y'all. You talked a little bit about your research that you did with the preterm birth initiative. And I had um, two questions about your other research projects. Um, my first one is about your project on racial health inequity in the NICU. Can you talk yep. about that project and why it was important and maybe any preliminary findings you may have? Let me lift up that work because that is a collaborative project and I want to be very, very clear that I am one of five other really incredible uh, folks who are working on that piece. The real, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, spearhead person on that project is a nurse that I'm lucky enough to work with. Her name is Olga Smith. Um, and Olga is a, you know, Latinx identified um you know, uh, nurse who has been on a couple of my uh, research projects and she teamed up um, with one of our favorite, favorite uh, residents to really sort of think about, and black residents, mind you, in pediatric, to, you know, really address the parents' issues of racism in the NICU and to really think about, you know, what they need in order for us to be able to address you know racism in our own work environment and kayla is um uh Carvinen is the resident i want to make sure i said her last name correctly uh, she's a black resident who's working with olga smith the latinx nurse who really developed this project along with me uh dr elizabeth rogers who's a physician and she's one of the the chairs in pediatrics and then we're working with this incredible black uh, just mental health worker. Her name is Amber McZeal. She's a doctoral student. She runs a blog and a website on Instagram, and she's been doing a lot of Clubhouse under the name of her business, which is uh, Decolonizing the Psyche. And she really does a, a African Black-centered mental health program that's really, really grounded in restoration and accountability and rest 
and it's just amazing. So what we decided to do, it's a mixed methods project, meaning we, we are qualitative and those interviews have not started yet. And I would be remiss not to say that Brittany Chambers, who's a postdoc and somebody that I've worked with for a long time, is also on this project leading the, the interviews. We're gonna start interviewing parents um around their experiences in the NICU and how racism shows up in NICU neonatal intensive care unit and that's where your baby doesn't go home with you but they actually stay in the hospital and they need specialized care in order to catch up um in terms of what their gestational age was to whenever they were born early so one of the things that when babies are born soon their brain development has not finished and a lot of their systems aren't functioning appropriately so they have a hard time regulating their body temperature they have a hard time, you know, digesting and absorbing nutrients and foods. It's because they're still trying to grow and develop, right? But they're not in their liquid environment anymore. So we've got to figure out a way to sort of help recreate that. Plus they're exposed to noise and light and things that they wouldn't have to deal with if they were still in the uterus, right? So, but it's also a really high stress time. And so we want to talk to parents about what that's like. You might not bring your baby home. Your baby might die in the NICU. Like there's all these sort of like things. And then you have this disparate treatment between black infants and white infants that's been well-documented at Stanford at our own university uh, by the brilliant Rachel Herneman, really showing that babies who are treated, black babies who are treated by black doctors actually do better, right? So we wanted to look at that qualitatively interviewing the parents and quantitatively using an anonymous survey, because we know not everybody's gonna talk about a place where they're receiving care, where they really think some of the staff is racist, right? I mean, then you're worried that people are gonna take that out on your baby or somehow they're gonna be mean to you. Like, so we wanted to make sure we, we created feedback loops scientifically where people could get us the information that they wanted to get us so that we could then turn that around and improve care, right? So, this was built on preliminary work that we had already done in the NICU, knowing that parents had complained, um, especially about nursing. And, and this always hurts, right? Because I'm a nurse. But that, and, and I always try to contextualize our data this way. We screwed up when we started talking about COVID-19 as an ICU bed crisis and a hospital bed crisis. Because I think people think about it like a hotel, right? Oh, we're out of rooms. Actually, there's so many staff that have to go along with that bid. So that when you when you really, this is why we should have never pitted the public against like healthcare workers in terms of who was essential and who wasn't and who needed personal protective equipment and who didn't. Because if our workplaces, and I've argued this all along, if our workplaces are inhumane, how do we expect it to provide good care for anybody? How do we expect it to be a good working place even for the staff, right? So then you get this vicious loop. I actually think clinician burnout and patient mistreatment are two sides of the same coin. And it's because our workplaces are inhumane. So think about it, if you're a new baby and you're in a NICU, obviously this is gonna be an inhumane environment to you. You're not home with your family and you're not still in your mom's uterus. So how do we think about you know, what that experience is like for that whole familial unit and why people might view that microaggression or that actual aggression or that you're not listening to me, or that I need information and I don't need you to treat me like I'm a three-year-old by giving it to me. Like all of that falls under racism in the NICU, which really comes at this whole place of, let's own it's a stressful time for the baby, for the parents and for the staff. Let's own that there are, you know, dark angles. I'm trying not to use the word blind spot. I'm trying to be less ableist in my language 
Um, but there are, are dark angles that we can't see around that, you know, our engagement with patients may be detached because we may be feeling emotion about how the clinical trajectory is going, but we're trying to fake and be objective as clinicians as we've been trained, how that also can be perceived and sometimes is real racism, right? So trying to unpack all of this because it's complex. And we also know that neglect and refusal to listen the inability to recognize signs and symptoms of deterioration, all of that is predicated upon racist beliefs, you know, whether it's implicit or explicit. I actually really don't care. And I don't actually really use that language because I don't find it to be helpful. Um, where babies are being treated differently. And we need to capture that because you can't fix a problem that you can't name. So that's what that study is about. And we are really trying to unpack, you know, how disparate care shows up for Black, Latinx, and Asian babies, looking at the whole team. Because this is the other thing I don't like about racism in healthcare. Everybody thinks it's the physicians. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's the unit clerks that answer the phone, that's, that's underpaid, that's being snippy, right? It's the nurses who haven't peed all shift, and yet somehow they can't come check on your baby's pump, right? It's, it's all that, right? But it's also this underlying belief that there's something inherently wrong with black people. And so that we need to somehow police your behavior as well as you in our environment. Like it's all of it. So for me, we can't get at racism in healthcare if we're not looking at the entire team. We can't get at racism in healthcare if we don't look at our policies and procedures and practices. And we can't look at racism in healthcare if we don't have simulation spaces to correct our behavior. So one of the things that we're going to try and lead to in this study is giving people a simulation space where they can practice. Oops, ouch, I said that. Oh my God, really sorry. Parents, can we rewind on this? Do you want me to leave? Should I go get a different practitioner? Like, that's the kind of stuff we need to be doing. And so that's hopefully what the study will pull forward. Good, good ways, constructive ways based on parent feedback and clinician feedback so that we can have better interactions and better engagement in those high stress environments and situations. Yes, I definitely agree. I've uh, recently had like some uterine issues and I've been in and out of different clinics. I can see, I see the way I interact with like my first provider, which I was very uncomfortable and like some weird things versus the other provider where I felt very comfortable and relaxed and I was sharing and giving him more information and like, just like, I felt like he was more invested in my health and so I was also like giving him more things to work with to like kind of like fix everything versus just being kind of like on edge and like not wanting to say too much and I can definitely and it's like you know these things and you read the books and you listen to the talks and then you experience them and you're like oh my gosh like, I see RJ like manifest like in my life I see like racism in healthcare manifest and like you actually experience it and it's like very different <laughs> but um, it yeah. is and, and the hard part that I always try to get our clinical colleagues to understand is we have to curate a space for people to bring that stuff forward. Cause guess what? People are scared, right? When y'all come in, like I always say, people trust us with their care, right? People come in afraid, not just of, of hospitals and healthcare institutions, but they don't know what's going on. 
They are hoping that we will use our skills and algorithms to try and figure out what's going on and collect all the data that we need to test, the lab work, all that other stuff, right? And you're talking to me as a person who's had a marine IUD for a decade because I bled out during my in, in my car during my postdoc when I was trying to drive across the Bay Bridge to go see my advisor because of fibroids, right? So I, you know, I for me it, it is a that that and and as a nurse for as long as I've been right it was so hard to go into kaiser where i used to manage the unit right i was a nurse manager at kaiser in the 90s to walk in and say i just bled out in my car and i have to go see my advisor in like an hour and i need somebody to do something because this needs to get fixed and i got to go and everybody and their mother talking me into, well, when really should stay, you should run some tests, do this, do that. I'm like, listen to me, I am a nurse. I ran this unit. In fact, I moved y'all to this building from 2200 O'Farrell eight years ago. Listen to me, I'm telling you what I, I work in obstetrics and gynecology. It's the only thing I've worked in the last 30 years. Great. I shouldn't have to do that. I should have been the scared, bleeding out patient who really should have taken her ass home and <laughs> not trying to continue going to see my post advisor. But I did that, right? Because I needed to do that. But we have to give, we have to curate the space for patients and families to be able to continue to trust us with their care. And that's what this racial NICU project is really about. What do black parents need to see, right? In a, even in our own institution, beautiful UCSF, San Francisco, there's all white pictures on the wall when you walk in. You know, it's a NICU. It should be bright colors and paint. And it is the most sterile place. And we have a brand new hospital, brand new building. I'm like, who did that, right? Do we need to have placards? And especially now when everybody's in PPE because of COVID, you know, do we need to be putting pictures on our scrub caps? Do we need to put smiling faces and stickers? People need to know that, that we are protecting ourselves, but we're still as committed to service as we have ever been like, and we want to partner with them to make this as safe for all of them, right? That's a real different narrative than y'all can't come visit because you know, we ain't dying. Like what the hell? Our workplaces are inhumane. So let's start there and then let's, let's move toward it. That's so that's how we do this research project because we think it's super important that, we, that healthcare remembers that we're on service for a reason that we need to curate the spaces that allow people to give us the pieces of the puzzle so that we can help them connect it so that they can make the right decisions that they need for the health of themselves and their families. That That's 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 our job. That's, that's all our job is, right? And, and that's where I think we get gummed up a lot. I've been doing a lot of research and, and again, Olga's a master's prepared nurse. I'm trying to talk her into doctoral studies, but she's just, she's just finishing up her master's in health policy. Kayla is a resident, and I think she's, if I remember correctly, she's a second or third year resident. She's going to become a pediatrician and be taking care of these children, and she's a young Black woman. She needs to be on an intergenerational, interdisciplinary, people of color lay research team so that that's normal for her. She can have that expectation as a physician so that she can also fight for it and use some of that physician currency, right? So, and she, she we also have people with lived experience. We have a whole community advisory board that, that went through our website, that went through all our recruitment materials. We paid them 
community members. We pay them to do that work because they're offering their expertise and their time. So she that needs to be normal for her as a future Black physician so that she knows that it's possible to conduct research, ethical research, with Black families in a, in a, in a way that is consistent with her principles and her morals. So yeah, these are early career folks. I'm the senior person on this project and I, I'm stepping back. When they ask me questions, I do. I reviewed all of our consent forms and documents to be able to make sure they met the rigorous standards that we need for the science that we want to be able to do. I reviewed the interview guide, you know. I'm so lucky that we have a resident black woman psychologist, soon to be psychologist on our team to help when, when harm comes up, to help adjudicate you know when we have conflict right so it, it's it's a it's a fun project it's a good project it's a necessary project and i hope it improves care for black indigenous people color families in in those you know high risk high crisis thank you that does sound like a really um good project and i know there's i'm, I'm based in new orleans and there's like saws light and organizations that work with nikki family so i feel like this could definitely inform like some of the advocacy that they're doing yeah but I also wanted to ask about your other project. It has a long title. It's uh, Establishing the Reproductive Health Equity and Birth Justice Corps for a National Registry Study <laughs> Specific to COVID-19 During Pregnancy. Um, that sounds like an amazing project. It's also like so timely, obviously, because of COVID. And from my understanding, I thought like grant writing and getting accepted was like a long process. But obviously, we haven't been in COVID for that long. And this is already like getting started. So can you talk about how that has been? Let me tell you something. You know between March 5th and May 5th, I wrote five grants in the midst of a pandemic. And I, I, I don't say that to brag, I say that to make this point. If we had functioning public health infrastructure, nobody should have had to write grants during a pandemic, right? Because if we had a fully functioning federal government and a national health service, then they would have just pushed out money to be able to set up research projects, just like every other you know, high income country was able to do. But since we don't have functioning public health infrastructure, and that was a controversial thing to say a year ago, and people told me so. And now I'm just sitting back looking at people side eyed and I'm like, I wrote three grants, I wrote five grants, three got funded very rapidly. And one of the first people out the gate was the Terra Health Foundation. I got to shout them out because we actually have a black woman program officer who I had talked to, in fact, one of the last flights I took right before shelter in place happened was uh, I was in Louisville, Kentucky, the abortion care network meeting. And I saw our program officer, um, uh, you know, Tanisha Duncan, who is currently a master's student in business administration at Howard. She, um, I pitched her a couple of ideas about health equity and stuff that I really wanted to work on for the, for the next year, not knowing a pandemic was coming. And one of them was I wanted to establish an RHE and BJ. And RHE and BJ is Reproductive Health Equity and Birth Justice Corps. I'm bringing together me and Karen Scott, Dr. Karen Scott, Dr. Ifengwa Asiadu, Dr. Brittany Chambers. We're going to bring together some staff, an intergenerational like research hub that we call Cherish. And Cherish stands for, and it's Cherish without the H in the front. So it stands for the Community Engaged Research Incubator and Strategy Hub. 
And what that hub is supposed to do is supposed to link researchers with community-based organizations and community members where people, we would have a data repository, people would have access to library uh, articles so they weren't emailing folks saying, hey, can you get me this email article? Like we were gonna set up this whole hub where community members and researchers and scholars and students and this whole intergenerational thing where black people could really develop an evidence base that black people wanted, right? That was the whole pitch. And I said, in part of that work, we're gonna do a RHE and BJ, which is a reproductive health equity and a birth justice core. And our original idea was we wanted to be able to continue to collect stories, you know, from birthing people, continue to add to what now has become the sacred birth study and the patient reported experience measure, all the beautiful QI work that Dr. Karen Scott is doing. Like we had all this stuff planned out. COVID hit. And I said, you know what, Tanisha, black people are going to need money. We need to, we need infrastructure. I said, and I, I told her straight up, I said, I'm going to go to you and several other funders, but I will tell you right now, because I have been around during every pandemic, you know, in the 20th century, well, almost every pandemic in the 20th century, right? HIV, Zika, H1N1, Ebola, MERS, SARS. Like I, I, I've been a nurse for all of those. And what's going to happen is pregnant people are not, they're going to be an afterthought. We have to make sure that pregnant people, we get their data, that we partner with them because they've been excluded from every other like pandemic. Right? Like you saw, nobody was pregnant in the vaccine trials, right? None, zero. We still doing that in the 21st century. And so I said, UCSF is going to set up some registries and the reason why registries, what registries are is nothing more than you get a large number of individuals to answer some surveys at set specific points in time so that you can ask research questions of those registries. And there's an HIV registry in pregnancy, there's a Zika, MERS, all that. I said, and they are going to do this wrong. They're going to start enrolling pregnant people who have COVID or who have been under suspicion of COVID and watch. It's going to be mostly a registry of pregnant physicians and nurses who were pregnant at the time that COVID hit. And then they're going to make all these generalizations because they're going to have all these numbers of people. And they're going to find out a decade later, like we did in HIV, that all those data of gay men didn't really speak to the women's experiences of HIV. And then you have to set them up all over again. So we should proactively add a community engagement core and a research and birth equity core to these registries that are going to get set up. So that's what we did. And we enrolled 1,500 people from across the country. And our core got added on because lo and behold, when they got to the halfway point of 750 people who were enrolling, pregnant people who had a COVID positive test or people who were under investigation for COVID, whether they were uh, awake or whether they were intubated and in ICUs, we were consenting people around the country from academic medical centers. When we got to the halfway point, the median age of pregnancy was 24 weeks. And over, over half that group had an income of $150,000 or greater. And it's because it was physicians and nurses who were pregnant at the time that COVID hit that were in the registry. And I was like, you're never gonna, that's not gonna work for black indigenous people of color. So we added a black people, indigenous, queer color, uh, queer folk of color uh, core to really help with recruitment, retention. We wanted to set up a community advisory council so that when we were making decisions about publication, like they have decision authority. Whenever the registries wanna do something, we gotta take it back to the community advisory council. And I couldn't believe that we set up that council. We, we, we had an application was open for two weeks in, in uh, May, uh, end of May, beginning of June. 
we got 157 applications from all 50 states. 98 of those applications were complete. We selected 21 people from 14 states to serve as the National Community Advisory Council for the registry. I couldn't believe that nobody had ever, at least to my knowledge, have ever set up a National Community Advisory Board made of people with lived experience. I, I had no model. I had to go for regional ones. I mean, obviously I have, I have my own community advisory boards, but no one had ever done a national one. We did that with Robert Wood Johnson money. So now whenever the registries wanna send out data or ask questions or come up with recruitment materials or we have questions about participant remuneration, it goes to the council. Then we set up another 11 uh, community-based organizations, black women-led community-based organizations. We're doing, gonna be doing some listening tours. We've started the first two asking them to do the same generate and rank prior what research questions do you want us to ask and answer from the registry right because communities of color aren't getting our questions answered so what questions do y'all have that you would like to see us be able to answer from the registry data and we're doing that in six different states so that's that's what our core is doing right now we've been doing it since march um really you know meeting bi-weekly having our community advisory council meet every month and working with community-based organizations black women-led community-based organizations around the country to hear what the people they're serving what research questions what clinical questions what policy questions what public health questions do you want to see get answered from registry data so that's what we've been doing and we've been paying everybody we pay the committee members, we pay the, the uh, community-based organizations, and we pay the $125 as a living wage, right? We pay, we pay living wages. Because I said this, folks, people are going to need cash. We have got to get folks money. That's going to be the thing because we don't have a functioning public health infrastructure. And at the time, I didn't think we had a functional government. So how are we, how are we going to make sure that people could get beyond mutual aid this again goes back to what's the responsibility of a researcher in a liberal state? Like, cause part of me feels like UCSF should have never gotten that money. That money should have gone directly to the community based organizations. But if, if there was no infrastructure to make that happen. So again, it goes back to working on those structures. Now those, those so I've worked with all these funders. I was like, well, you know, you really should be funding our community partners, not us. Right. So in year two, you need to send the money to them. Don't send it to the university. University is pissed. But the truth is I do community engaged work. They are just as eligible as my academic institution to be able to receive those dollars, especially if they're 501c3 or if they're fiscally sponsored, they are equally eligible. So why do we have to play the middleman? Oh, just cause I know how to write a grant. All right, then let me write the one that they need so they could get the money. <laughs> so for me, that the RHEMBJ, it's been such a fun, thing i didn't think we would be able to pull together a uh, such a tight uh community advisory board virtually but it, it's happened i mean religiously 14 states are represented by 21 of the most badass people and you can see it on our website we we, we gave them business cards we put their photo up on the website we, they asked them for bios we did all that because they are our partners they are our research partners they're experts by experience. So they get to be on the website just like me and if anyone, Karen and Brittany, they, they, they work in. So for me, giving them that legitimacy of saying that this is work that you are doing during the COVID-19 pandemic to really help amplify 
the the work that you're doing with Black, Indigenous, and people of color, and the communities that you represent, you know, so that we can actually make sure that they get the resources of humans and money and time that they need in order to be able to continue to do their essential work. We create a public-facing data dashboard so that they can look at the COVID data that's in the registry. And we'll be coming out with infographics and, and other pieces. We did a tweet chat with Moms Rising so that we could introduce the, the community members. Um, we're gonna be doing some media training with them so that the community advisory board, you be talking to the community advisory board, not me. <laughs> you don't need to talk to me, right? I mean, cause they are capable of representing the work cause they're doing it. So that's that project. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we are almost out of time. Thank you for that explanation. Oh, come on, I didn't see. Oh, oops. No, it's okay. I, I know you have a lot to do, so I don't want to go over. But my last question is: um, I've been listening to the Nat the Nat Ministry on social media recently, and they kind of talk about um, taking naps, especially for Black women, and just resting as a revolutionary act. And you do so many things and wear so many hats. So I was wondering if you agree with them that rest as a for a Black woman is a revolutionary act, and how do you incorporate that into your work? I love the Nat Ministry folks. And I don't know them, but I love them. I follow them on Twitter and Instagram. I love them. That said, I'm a nurse. I'm a doer. I'm a fixer. Like I said, I am a big child. So I do spend a lot of time. I actually, as a sabbatical, I've been doing a lot of reading of other people's work. I have been trying to divest myself of the ownership uh, and the policing of RJ. Like I, I find myself doing that in the scholarly and academic literature. And I'm like, hold on. Is it, it's bigger. If, if you really think it's bigger than who we think, than, than what it is, then other people get to expand on that, right? We don't want to co-opting it, right? Or, or doing the whole like whitewashing of it, but we do want it to expand. And so what's that ownership about? What's that policing journals using the language? Like, what is all that about? So I've really been trying to divest from some of that to, to really get beyond the distraction. So one thing that the NAP ministry has helped me to understand is some things are very purposive in their need to distract me because I'm less effective when I'm distracted. The same way, you know, implicit bias and all these other things show up. Like if you're in tension with teams, you, then you miss the signs of symptoms of deterioration because you're distracted. So distraction serves a purpose, right? But I love the NAP ministry. And for me, you know, it, it's more about how can I find different touch points in my life where I can slow down, where I can disengage, where I don't have to do, um, and to give myself permission to be able to want when I, that's how I incorporate their, like, so I didn't open my laptop all weekend. Just didn't open it. And there are days like, like the week of the election, didn't open my laptop, took the whole week off. Right. I mean, I, the whole, like after the insurgent situation, I canceled every meeting I had on the sixth, the seventh and the eighth. I was like, mm, no, I don't need to engage with you. So for me, it's being more proactive about when I know that there are going to be national points of unrest that I need to not plug into that because then it's doom scrolling and then your life is horrible. And, no, I've learned, I'm not taking any meetings where I have to fight with people if I'm being on camera or not because folks tried to have a coup in the government. No, I'm not doing that. So I've learned to cancel meetings. I've learned to reschedule things. I've learned to be proactive in blocking that stuff off on my calendar so I don't have to deal with it. 
and I don't have to engage in all that negative energy that that goes around people feeling that they need to opine about stuff that in my opinion they don't have positionality to do so so I the thing I've learned from the net ministry is I need to do better um, but the other thing I've learned is I can proactively manage my exposure to uh, harmful folk, harmful people. I'm trying this new thing out on Twitter where I'm asking folks not to tag me with folks I would never voluntarily speak to in person. I, I just, there's no reason why I should have to be in proximity with them on Twitter just because you can. And maybe you don't know that I have that relationship with that person, but please don't tag me with them. Thanks. <laughs> So taking care of oneself in small ways to allow you to have more space for creativity, that's what I take away from the net ministry. And I love them. But my, my support of them is, is, you know, at 100% is aspirational. <laughs> that's my, my life is ridiculously busy and I, that's an excuse. And, but I, right now, I'm, 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 I'm baby steps for me and I'm okay with that. Nice. Perfect. Thank you for that. Um, thank you for this entire interview. You've dropped a lot of like, I've learned a lot on this interview. Um, so thank you for your time. I'm really excited um, to see the work that you're going to be doing like in the future. Also, I've been seeing you tweet a lot recently um, about things going on. So uh, well, I left Facebook. <laughs> oh, Facebook. That's where I got to find you. Okay. I, I left Facebook. I only have oh, a left. Yeah, I don't I don't have a personal. Well, my personal account is deactivated, but I still have a page. But that whole insurrection leading up to that, I, I left Facebook on my birthday on New Year's Eve. I was like, nah, no, I'm done. So I have a page, but I don't have a personal feed anymore. It's deactivated. I didn't delete it. And I, I don't miss it. But I appreciate y'all so much. And, you know, the work that Sister Song does and, and just, you know, my BFF, the other Monica, as I always call her. I, it is just so vital that we have institutions that are black women led, black women vision, black women run, black people, you know, engaged that is just, it's, it's, it's important mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways that I don't eloquently get to describe, um, but I'm grateful. So that is the end of the episode. Thank y'all so much for listening. Um, I'm just so grateful to have been able to speak to Dr. McLemore. Um, I hope you all have learned so much from her and I will leave her links down below so you can check out some of the work that she's doing right now and follow her on social media because like I said, she's very active on Twitter and she's amplifying a lot of the really important work. And I will talk to y'all on the next episode of BFR. Um, PSA, follow me on the Instagram at Black Feminist Rants. If you haven't noticed, I've switched to bi-weekly episodes instead of weekly episodes for my mental health. Okay, bye.